0: Dr. Shannon is the Executive Vice President for Health Affairs at the University of Virginia. Dr. Shannon received his B.A. from Princeton University and his M.D. from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Prior to his arrival at UVA, Dr. Shannon served as Professor and Chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and Chair of the Department of Medicine at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. Dr. Shannon is a recognized champion for transforming American healthcare care by proactively developing methods to prevent hospital-acquired infections. This pioneering work in patient safety is documented in the chapter First Do No Harm in the book The Best Practice How the New Quality Movement in Transforming Medicine. Dr. Shannon's innovative work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, on ABC's 2020, and was the centerpiece of the 2006 PBS special entitled Remaking American Medicine. I highly recommend if you get a chance to watch this feature where Dr. Shannon tells us that we cannot afford to not be engaged. A great life lesson for us all. Please join me in welcoming the man who is always looking for better ways to improve the quality of life, Dr. Richard Shannon, to More Than the Score.
1: Thank you, well, that's wonderful, thank you very much. Wow, thank you for that kind introduction. Please excuse my voice, um, I have a little daughter at home who is uh, the constant source of new viruses and bacteria that. Uh, that I'm finding myself no longer immune to, but I actually feel much better than I sound. So uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, this is extraordinary, and uh, you know I think the fact that many of you gather regularly uh, to maintain a, a, a tie to the university and hear a lot about the exciting things that are going on across grounds uh, is really something special uh, that I think really characterizes UVA, something I've learned certainly since I've come here. You know, I came from the University of Pennsylvania. It's Not a bad place, uh, but the idea that you would gather 200 alums on a Saturday morning on a regular basis to hear something uh, about the university would be unheard of. Um, And so uh, maybe once in a semester, but not every Saturday. So uh, like so many things about UVA, uh, you are special, and it is certainly a special place. I'm going to spend a little time today talking with you about healthcare reform and uh, wind up by sharing with you a little bit about the way the UVA health system is playing in the world of health care reform. Not a day goes by where there isn't a headline in some paper featuring uh, uh, what is happening in the world of health care. Just yesterday, United, the largest commercial insurer in the country, uh, said that it was losing money on its exchange products and was going to pull out of the exchanges, Uh, yet another threat to what I think has been a very important but shaky start to the Affordable Care Act, um, and every day throughout the uh, the healthcare world, there is some perturbation like that. I heard about the United News yesterday when I was really in a very exciting place, so yesterday, I was up in New York at IBM headquarters um, ibm 's global health uh, arm, which reports directly to the CEO, uh, is interested in coming to UVAA to learn a little bit about the Be Safe program. Um, And what they're going to bring with them is Dr. Watson. So how many of you have heard of Dr. Watson? So it's phenomenal. I had the experience yesterday of meeting the latest version of Dr. Watson, which is cognitive computing, natural language recognition that allows a computer to sit with a physician and ensure the accuracy of both the diagnosis and the treatment. Remarkable, remarkable tool. So, we're going to hopefully welcome IBM uh, shortly after the first of the year, and I'd love to be a place where we begin to test this kind of technology because bringing technology into healthcare, I think, is going to be uh, in large measure responsible for eliminating some of the waste I'm going to talk about. So, why would we come on a Saturday morning and talk about healthcare? Uh, uh, I think for this reason, uh, there is really a national economic crisis about the rising cost of healthcare. And this is the Stanford economist Victor Fuchs who said if we solve our nation's healthcare spending, practically all the nation's fiscal problems will go away. But if we don't solve the healthcare problem, there is virtually no other fiscal lever that can fix the US economy. Virtually every aspect of our lives today is influenced by the rising cost of health care. When we think about the erosion of the American middle class, it has less to do with jobs and education, and much more to do with the fact that over the last 15 years, healthcare premiums have risen by 80 percent at a time when working wages have raised have gone up by 9 percent. And those of you that are employers know you're confronted annually with a choice: pay the usual double-digit increases in healthcare premiums for your workers, or give them a raise. But the rising cost of healthcare, costing more but adding, preciously little more value has really served to functionally suppress the wages of the American middle class. And I would submit to you that is one of the biggest drivers of this growing gap in our great nation and needs to be addressed. Now, I think it's important to recognize that when many think of, many think about all the politics around the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, uh, healthcare reform is really not of a political making. Healthcare reform is made up of two changing natural factors. One is the changing face of human disease. And the other are baby boomers entering Medicare. Now I'm going to guess, just guess, that there are a few of us in the audience for which this is a particularly relevant conversation. But today, 10,000 Americans will turn age 65. If any of you are here today, please stand. We'd love to salute you on your birthday. But 10,000 people today turn 65 in America. And tomorrow, another 10,000. And 10,000 more every day for the next 19 years. That demographic, more than anything else, is driving the crisis in healthcare. And the crisis in healthcare simply isn't about how much we spend in healthcare. It's about the trade-offs that are occurring on a social basis. So we spend about three trillion dollars on healthcare in the country. Um, three trillion sounds like a lot of money, but if you say it fast enough—million, billion, trillion—it kind of you know, all rolls off your tongue. But just to illustrate what $3 trillion is, if I had a $1,000 bill in my hand, which I don't. They don't print them anymore. But if I had a $1,000 bill and I laid it on this lectern, every five seconds it would take 476 years to count out $3 trillion. We spend it every year on health care. And that's 18 times more than we spend on education. It's eight times more than we spend on defense. It's 17 times more than we spend on clean water. So over time, as healthcare costs have gone up, those social goods have really suffered. So as a society, we simply have to get our hand around this. But it's not political. It's a result of two natural forces. So what do I mean by the changing face of human disease? You know, when most of us were growing up, diseases like scarlet fever and rheumatic fever and bacterial pneumonias, were the common conditions. Infections that you could treat with an antibiotic for seven to 10 days, and those infections would resolve. Today, the diseases that we face are chronic diseases, diseases that have to be treated, in some cases, over a lifetime. So by the year 2025, one in every three Americans is expected to have pre-diabetes. One in every three Americans. And diabetes is a lifelong illness. Not just one visit to the doctor, multiple repetitive visits to the doctor. So that change in the kind of human diseases, cancer, great strides in people living longer with cancers. But it isn't a one treatment deal. It is a lifelong commitment to treatment. Hypertension, heart disease, and neurodegenerative diseases, the new kid on the block. the emergence of, of Alzheimer's disease and multiple sclerosis and other neurodegenerative diseases are really causing us to have to think differently about the way we deliver care, because you become a partner for life. It's not a one stop. So that changing face of human disease, diabetes, heart failure, chronic pain, back pain, back pain is the third most common chronic condition in America. Much of this is related to inactivity and obesity, preventable things, which right now we're not spending a lot of time and money to address. But the big one is the demographic. And here you see, many of us will remember this day, I certainly remember, um, in 1965 when President Johnson signed the Medicare Trust Fund Act, establishing for the first time a network of commitment to older Americans that they would have a right to health care. Second only to Social Security, in my mind, in terms of of one of the great social goods. This is a picture of President Johnson with Lady Bird Johnson, Vice President Humphrey, many of you will remember. And this is Harry and Bess Truman. And President and Mrs. Truman were the first two recipients of Medicare beneficiary cards on that day. You can see what the President said. No longer will older Americans be denied the healing of modern medicine. No longer will illness crush and destroy the savings they so carefully put away over a lifetime so that they might enjoy dignity in their later years. No longer will young families see their own incomes, their own hopes, eaten away simply because they're carrying out a deep moral obligation. An extraordinary event. Now fast forward to not, from 1965 to 2015, and here's what's happened. In 1965, The average per capita cost for a Medicare beneficiary was $285. Today, it is over $8,000 we spend per Medicare beneficiary. That's the red line. The blue line is the doubling of Medicare beneficiaries that have occurred between 1965 and 2015. Over 50 years, we've gone from about 20 million Americans in Medicaid to now 44 million Americans in Medicaid. But that's not the punchline. The punchline is between 2015 and 2015. And 25, just the next 10 years, will go from 44 to 92 million Americans qualified for Medicare. It is simply not sustainable in its current format. And importantly, back in 1965, most of you, there were five working Americans for every one Medicare beneficiary. And as you know, the Medicare trust fund is funded by a payroll tax, people that are working pay a into a fund like Social Security. And we all believe there's a little account in the US Treasury with our name on it available to us when we turn 65. Unfortunately, it's all spent. It's basically all spent. And the problem is that while there were five people working for every one beneficiary in, 2000, in 1965, in 2025, there'll be two working Americans for every one beneficiary. So, this is the nation's challenge to solve over the next 10 years the issue of fulfilling this social obligation. So, when you think about the frantic things that are going on in healthcare today, it's not because people are trying to perturb the system, it's this. And this is just another illustration of what I said earlier. In 2015, this is the increase in the number of people over the age of 85, those over the age of 65, compared to the total population. The actual birth weight in America is going down, so the number of young people in America is decreasing at a time when most of us are going to enter that world. Now, if you were a white man with a white-collar job born in 1955, let's just say there may be somebody in the room that fits that description, um, I have a two-thirds chance of living to the age of 85. If I have a blue collar job, or I am a person of color, I have a one third chance of living to the age of 85. But in 1965, regardless of your job or your color, it was expected you would live three years beyond the age of 65. So the actuarial basis of Medicare was people will live to the age of 68, not to the age of 85 not to the age of 85. And here is the ultimate economic outcome. In blue is the total revenue that the US government collects today. Now, I really hope they don't let Pfizer become an Irish company and take $200 million of revenue overseas and out of the tax base. That's a lot of the games that are going on in corporate America today. But based upon this revenue base, in 1980 this is the spend on four government programs Medicare Medicaid Social Security and the federal debt just four things that the federal government paid for and you can see that up until 2010 or so there was more there was at least some additional federal revenue to pay for education and highways and defense and the environment but beginning in 2025 The amount of money required to support Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the federal debt will exceed the total federal government's revenue. That means no money for defense, no money for education, no money for the environment. Unless one of two things happens. We fix this and flatten it so that over the next 10 to 15 years, there is not this exponential increase in spend and that's largely Medicare, or we're going to have to fundamentally raise taxes. I didn't see everybody jump out of their seat when I suggested that, right? No one wants to see that solution. But those are the only two solutions. Fix the rising cost of health care, or we're going to have to tax the hell out of the public, if we want to maintain the quality of life that I think we've all come to some value so strongly. So, There are two fundamental approaches that are being considered in health care reform. 80% of health care reform is on the left side. Cuts in payments and cuts in services. The current federal government plan in the Affordable Care Act for a provider like us is the experience of death by a 1,000 cuts. Every year a little bit more out of what we get paid for services, and for you, a few less services. It's the only lever the government has. We're going to have to decrease the amount we pay for services, and we're going to have to decrease the services that are available for you. Now, where are you beginning to see that? You're beginning to see that in this rising cost of high deductible health plans. Right? Employers in the government no longer willing to pay 80 85% of the bill. Passing along to the worker and to the beneficiary 25, 30% of the spend on a high deductible or copay plan. Over the last two years, the average copay of an American worker has gone from a little over $1,000 to nearly $5,000. And now that may be okay, it might be giving you an opportunity to figure out how you want to spend your money. But what we're seeing is people aren't choosing to spend that money on health care because they got to feed their kids, and send their kids to college. And So as high deductibles go up, people actually aren't caring for themselves. They're using that disposable income for other purposes. So insurance has really become catastrophic coverage. And secondly, the problem in the exchanges, as illustrated by United's um, uh, circumstance, is all the people that came into the exchange were people that were sick. The 26-year-olds that need insurance, very late to come to the exchange. Most of them would rather pay the $965 tax penalty than buy a plan where the deductible is $5,000. I mean, they're they're smart. The new millennials say, I can go to Walgreens and get my flu shot. I don't need an insurance plan. So without an influx of young, healthy people into the exchanges, and with mostly sicker and and sometimes underprivileged people entering the exchanges, the insurance model doesn't work. And the exchanges are two years old. There's been a 30% exit and entry in and out of the insurance product. So you go in one year, and you don't like the Aetna product, you come out the next year, and you get the United product. And as you know, insurance is based upon an actuarial assessment over time. But if you can shift out of your product every year, in other words, oh, let's just see. I just discovered I have a colon polyp. I'll go buy my exchange product, get my colon polyp taken care of, and next year, I'll drop the coverage. That's what's happened. So I really believe deeply in the principles of affordable care. I believe every American should have access to health care. I don't think the means that we're set up to achieve it are going to work. So looking at the fiscal levers the government has, it's all about cuts. And for those of you that took any economics courses at the University of Virginia, you know that price controls have limited effect in that eventually price controls limit access. If you continue to decrease what doctors get paid to take care of Medicare patients, eventually doctors will stop taking care of Medicare patients. And in North Carolina, just to our start, to our South, 35% of family doctors in the entire state of North Carolina will no longer accept Medicare patients because they can't cover their costs. So at some point, if the only strategy is to cut, you'll reach a limit where doctors won't accept the patients. And you'll have a crisis in getting access to care, particularly in more rural areas. Right, You're not going to have a, you know, a million doctors leaving New York City, but they'll leave rural areas. They'll leave areas where critical access is already strained. So the other option, which 20% of the, of the United States is engaged in, is to do the following. What if we were to improve the way we deliver care toward the elimination of waste? What if we were to say that the ideal delivery system is designed to meet the patient's need, listen carefully, meet the patient's need the first time, on time, without defect, error, or waste? So we have taken started a journey where we're focused on the elimination of defect, error, and waste and waiting for services. And I'm going to show you some illustrations about how, how actually a third of what we spend on health care is consumed in defect, error, and waste, things that no one wants to pay for. So a third of three trillion is a trillion dollars that would more than pay for the baby boomers by 2025 that would more than pay for the baby boomers by 2025 so you know sitting with dr watson yesterday it can almost totally eliminate diagnostic error it's remarkable by just checking the doctor or the nurse's thinking continuously by iterating through this little little tablet Watson says, tell me the five things the patient's complaining of. And then it creates circles of likelihood what the diagnosis is. The doctor then says, I think it's x. And Watson then says, well, if you think it's x, go ask the following three questions. And tell me the answer to those three questions. And then based upon that, Watson says, well, I think you're right. Or Watson says, no, think about this. Go get an x-ray. And by the way, Watson can can read the x-ray. Watson can read the x-ray. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. So when you say, is it possible to eliminate error? Yeah. Now listen, as a physician, am I threatened by this? No. It enhances my ability to be an expert. All doctors want to consider themselves experts. And if I got this little thing I can take out of my pocket that guarantees I'm an expert, Why would I not want that? It's extraordinary. All cloud-based. All cloud-based. Extraordinary. I mean, we went through 25 complex diagnoses yesterday, and that Watson got it right. Now, we're going to have to make some investments to build Watson, right? So where are we going to get the money? We've got to improve our way by doing away with stuff that adds no value. And so that's the journey we're on. So what do I mean by things that are waste in healthcare? Here they are, harm, over-treatment, right? Getting a CAT scan and an MRI. Watson won't let you do that. Well, I'm not sure, let's get an MRI. Watson can help you figure that out. But even today, a lot of that duplication isn't necessary. How about the lost lab test? I had the test done at Dr. X. Well, sorry, we can't get the result, let's try it again. Happens all the time. I'm sure you've all experienced it. That's simply portability of medical information. It exists in one system. How do we get it to the other? All solvable problems, but right now consumed in waste, overtreatment. Failure in care delivery, when what we want to be the outcome is not delivered because of defect, error, or waste. Defects in care transition, where care stops at the hospital door and the continuation of services to home are largely ignored. I'll talk a little bit about UVA's play in care transitions. Excess administrative costs. That's people like me. You know, at the end of the day, if I'm not engaged in meeting patient need the right time, the first time, without defect, error, waste, then I'm excess. So you know, I see Jill here. Jill is one of our executive leaders and our entire leadership team now engages in thinking every day about how do we meet patient need. Not how do we just run meetings and move paper around, but how are we as leaders demonstrating our value by meeting patient need in system redesign. Now, this is just from Don Berwick's assessment. So you can see if if you basically eliminate this stuff, it's around somewhere between, you know, $910 $910 billion and $1.2 trillion of savings, if we could do away with all that stuff. So UVA's approach here is to get fast on the journey of getting really good at everything we do every day. Because we would like to improve our way out of this process by eliminating defect, error, and waste. So why begin with safety? Title of the talk today is Do No Harm. We've begun with safety at UVA because it's simply unassailable, right? Please raise your hand if you'd like to get an infection when you come to the hospital. Nobody ever raises their hand, right? Please raise your hand if you'd like to experience a medication error. So beginning with safety creates an institutional platform that nobody can argue with. It's not a complex question of whether at age 90 someone should get dialysis. That's a complex question. Even Watson right now can't answer that question. But if you were to eliminate harm in the form of unsafe conditions, what could you get out of the system? So it's unassailable. We all swore an oath as professionals that we would do no harm. Harm is the most elementary form of waste in any system. It's totally valueless. And I'm going to show you it can virtually be eliminated. Doesn't have to be that way. So in America, there's still about five to ten percent. of everybody comes to a hospital, gets an infection they didn't start with, it's about 1.7 million infections a year. About 100,000 people die every year with, as a result of these infections, it costs somewhere around 30 billion dollars currently. And so, you know, the question here is, this is um, on the left-hand side an Alcoa aluminum manufacturing plant in Alcoa, Tennessee. Now, if you wonder why they named the town Alcoa, it's because they employ everybody in the town. And in this Alcoa aluminum manufacturing plant, they make hot molten metal at 2,000 degrees on 10 ton cranes running over two football length fields. And the average age of the education of a worker there is barely a high school degree. Contrast that with the U.S. healthcare system. America's best hospitals, where I've got at least 24 years of some kind of professional education. And my question to you, which is safer? It's 27 times safer to walk at Alcoa than it is to walk into a U.S. hospital. So what does that opportunity turn into? How do you see waste? How do you identify defects? How do you pull them out? And then how do you solve for them? Because recognizing the problem and solving the problem, two big deals. So the idea is to get away from teaching to the test and to believe in the concept that we need to be habitually excellent at everything we do. Now, to be habitually excellent, and these are all lessons borrowed from America's great industries. I happened to learn, cut my teeth on this stuff at Alcoa uh, through a a partnership I formed with Paul O'Neill when he was the CEO there. So I learned how Alcoa made perfect aluminum, and how they went from being at one point one of the, uh, the uh, uh, worst places to work in the world to the safest place to work in the world. And in the context of eliminating harm to their workforce, they increased their market capitalization 800-fold. Doing the right thing is almost always the economically good thing, except in healthcare. So. The idea here is to get really good at everything we do, but that requires a daily commitment to improvement. Not a monthly or semi annual review of where we are, a daily commitment. It requires that to be improving continuously, everybody has to learn something new every day. If everybody in the healthcare organization is not learning something new every day, you cannot improve. So the idea here is continuous learning then. Requires a critical thinking approach by everybody in the organization, using a disciplined problem-solving approach. Now, throughout healthcare, when we think about building these kinds of systems of disciplined problem-solving, people say, "Oh my God, it'll you know it'll cost a lot of money." And historically, we have continuously balked at the modest investment required to improve without stopping to consider and calculate the cost of doing things average. There is a cost to poor performance. And if you can eliminate poor performance, you can take the savings and use it to invest in improvement methodologies and hopefully in Dr. Watson. IBM won't be giving Dr. Watson away, right? So here's the way we've done it. We've created something called Be Safe, which is our initiative to advance our status as a high performing organization by using a scientific method based upon lean principles to improve the safety of our workforce in real time problem solving every day, every day. So how do we do it? We've exposed 725 frontline staff and leaders to a lean thinking approach. In many cases, this is as much as 16 hours of training. In some cases, it's only about eight. We've stood up 26 unit-based leadership teams, which are comprised of a doctor and a nurse champion. Each of those teams has assigned to them a lean coach. And every day, that those three people go to their 30 or 40-bed unit and see and solve problems that involve patient safety, every day. And we actually hooked up with a couple of Darden MBAs to begin to cost out some of the savings. The idea being we gotta move fast here. And while we improve things, I think we also have to demonstrate that we're saving money. Because at the end of the day, remember, I told you the problem here is the cost of healthcare. So getting things better and not proving that you're saving money, I think, won't move, won't, won't cause people to move quick enough. Then we just hired six super coaches. These are lean coaches that are hanging out with people like me and Jill and others that are in the executive branch of the organization, teaching us to think using lean-based problem solving. Now, I don't want to leave you with this. And, and let me just say, all the work is done in 90-day coalitions. The issue being, if you can't solve it in 90 days, then you've got to get help. Because you can't take two and a half years to solve a problem. So dedicated, focused efforts, 90 days. And um, we started this about 18 months ago. I don't want to leave with the impression that we are a total lean organization. I would say we spend maybe 20 or 25% of our day in this rigorous lean thinking, and we still have some legacy systems you know, where we do things the way we used to do them. Ultimately, we need to shift that to where we're doing 75% of our work using these kind of tools, 25% of our work in the legacy systems. But we've only been at it for 18 months. And I don't say that as an excuse, but I'm going to show you what you can do in 18 months And I think that should hopefully give you confidence that we can go faster. So we meet every morning at 10 o'clock in the Situation Room. All the the hot shots in the organization, right? all the the people, meet with individuals from the unit-based clinical leadership teams. And we go through anything that went wrong yesterday. So on my phone this morning comes up a list of six things that happened yesterday in the organization that are being reported out today. And typically, although not today, we, and usually not on Saturday, we, uh, we meet in the situation room to go through the events of yesterday. So we'll cover the events that came up on my phone this morning on Monday morning. But usually it's the immediate 24 hours afterward. And we look at urinary tract infections, bloodstream infections, falls, pressure ulcers, teammate injuries, and we review everybody that died the day before to understand what happened. Now... Please remember, many people come to UVA with grave illnesses. And the one biological fact we won't be able to fix is we are all going to die of something. But we are interested in eliminating all unexpected deaths. And an unexpected death is a simple issue. If a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or a respiratory therapist left work last night and came in this morning and realize someone they had cared for yesterday died, they're asked a question Did you think that guy was going to die when you left yesterday? And anybody that says, Boy, you know, I didn't really think that guy was that sick, that triggers a real time root cause investigation into what we can learn about what happened. Now, there are roughly 800 people that die at UVA every year. Half of those people are transferred to us from other hospitals because we're a big referral center. And half of those people die in the first 24 hours. They are dead when they arrive. But because we are often thought to be the place where there's one last chance, people come from miles around who are gravely ill to seek that one last chance. So there are really 400 people that we care for that die every year. And the majority of those people die of an expected outcome. Advanced cancer, end stage heart failure, a failed organ transplant after many years of good quality of life and not being a candidate for a new organ. But if it wasn't expected, we want to know why. So this is just the format that everyone in the organization is being taught. This is an A3 where you define the, the problem. You describe how work is currently done. You define the target condition, how work should be done. And this is the accountability quadrant. What are you going to do? Who's going to do it? By when? With real names and real times and real outcomes. And these are the basis for these 90 day coalitions. I'm going to skip that. Oh, I just want to point out one thing. This sort of format appears on most of our inpatient units, where the daily work that the team is doing is graphically illustrated for everybody in the organization to see, and for our patients and families to see. We want them to know we're working on the elimination of things that don't add value. What's in this right-hand corner that you can't see particularly well is the engagement of our nurses. So this is one of our model units, five central. And the big blue line here are the engagement of our frontline nurses after we implemented Be Safe. So our nurses said, our organization is really interested in safety. Their response was twice what it used to be when we put the Be Safe system in place. They recognized that leaders were actually interested in it and that leaders knew the only people that can solve problems are the people that actually do the work. I can't solve the problem. Historically, people like me controlled organizations by holding certain information to myself so that people had to come to me to get answers. Be Safe says leaders don't have answers. They create systems to allow people to discover answers. And the best people to discover answers are people who do the work. I honestly don't know what the life of a frontline nurse is. But nurses are the guardians of safety. Unless you can equip them with the things they need, you have no chance of becoming safe. So we've dramatically increased the nursing workforce. We've increased the pay to our frontline nurses, because we need them daily. And we've tried to free up their time so they can learn every day. That's what Be Safe has been. So the issue is, can the elimination of harm in the form of these infections serve to eliminate unnecessary costs? Does it fulfill our duty to do no harm? And can we actually prove that we can deliver value by relentless focus on everything we do being excellent? Everything we do. The best outcome possible. So I'm going to show you a few early outcomes. This is data over 18 months. So since we started Be Safe, we've had 58 fewer bloodstream infections and 63 fewer urinary tract infections. That's a 62% reduction in 18 months. Our Darden people tell us that saved us $2.6 million. There are 109 fewer pediatric infections, which our Darden people say saved us $4.2 million. There are 53 fewer people that died of bacterial infections, $1.83 million of savings, not to mention the fact that they're alive. 36 fewer falls, $82,000 of savings. 46 fewer pressure ulcers, $1.6 million of savings. 97% reduction in a nurse not having what they need to do their work, what we call the supply chain. But many of you may think of the supply chain as the big group purchaser bringing the stuff to the dock at UVA. That's not where the defect occurs. The defect occurs in getting what a nurse needs to the bedside every day, every day, in the right amount without defect or waste. When we started this, we would find that nurses met patient needs by being great hoarders of supplies. They couldn't trust they'd have what they need, so they'd take eight times what they needed and stick it in the nursing server. Not because they were trying to be, you know, hoard stuff, but because they just couldn't afford to go back out there and not find it. My favorite story when I was at Penn was a case on a neurology unit where The nurses that were trying to monitor these patients with seizures didn't have enough uh, of the the leads, the EEG leads, that are used to monitor the patients. So this really entrepreneurial nurse grabbed the last three sets of leads and stuck them in the ceiling tile to hide them so that she and she alone would have with her patient. Now, that's incredibly resourceful, but not particularly efficient. So when we had nurses on one unit redesign the work, and now try to extrapolate that across the entire organization, it's estimated that we will save $3.2 million million in stuff that we were throwing away. More importantly, nurses don't have to go around trying to find stuff. So it is estimated, this is an estimate, that across the organization it could save as much as 29,000 hours of nurses' time. 29,000 hours. Imagine what a highly trained professional could do with 29,000 more hours. How about engage in a little stress reduction? Nurses have pretty stressful jobs. How about actually get to go to lunch? How about actually spend an additional 30 minutes with a caregiver trying to figure out how they're going to care for a loved one? How about operating at the top of their license, making suggestions about medication changes? suddenly you create within the system time that you're already paying for that's embedded in waste and you create this virtuous opportunity to begin to reform the system and then we have 96 fewer worker injuries remarkable how many healthcare providers get hurt at work now we're not making hot mold metal but needle sticks bodily fluid exposures Sometimes confused and disoriented patients striking out and hitting nurses, hitting them, not because they intend to, but because they're ill. I'm talking about hitting them. Nurses with back injuries trying to lift heavy patients. The 96 fewer, and I would consider that priceless. Now, okay, that's UVA. You add those number up; it looks pretty interesting. Um, but that ain't going to save the healthcare system. Right? That's one place in Virginia committing to excellence. But what if more places did? What is the opportunity? So this is when I was back in Philadelphia at Penn. I was part of something called the Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council. It was put in place by Governor Rendell. And the idea was publicly report all harmful conditions across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, pretty much the same size as Virginia. Um, There are about 2 million people that are hospitalized in Pennsylvania. This is in 2012. And 23,287 of those people got an infection in the hospital. And you can see the types of infections. Urinary tract infections, surgical site infections, Clostridium difficile infections, all the different kinds of infections. But 23,000. 297 infections. Now, the actually said, what happens to people that get those infections compared to people that don't? In Pennsylvania, if you get one of these infections, you have a 9.4% chance of dying in the hospital. If you don't, you have a 1.8% chance of dying. You stay 22 days if you get one of these infections compared to five. You get readmitted to the hospital. Waste. 41% of the time compared to 16% of the time. And Medicare currently pays $20,000 for that care compared to $6,600 if the care is uncomplicated by an infection. Now, this is about a $13,000 difference in payment savings opportunity. If you didn't have these infections, care would cost that, not that. So if you multiply $13,000 by 23,287, it amounts to $327 million spent in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 2012 on infections that nobody wanted. Just extrapolate what UVA did in 18 months, a 62% reduction to what happened in Pennsylvania. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And safety is only one opportunity. How about if we created the perfect patient discharge, meaning you went home with everything you needed to leave the hospital in a better state of health than when you showed up and sustain it for 90 days. A warranty that said, we guarantee you will have what you need to stay out of the hospital for 90 days. The perfect patient discharge. What about the perfect cardiac surgery? What if there was no waiting? So we've been involved in work redesigning our, our pre-anesthesia area, where patients for cardiac surgery come to get cleared, to be seen by the anesthesia team. When we started this, if you walked into the pre-anesthesia area, the first sign you were greeted with, this is about a year and a half ago, the first sign you were greeted with was a sign that says, please be patient. It may take as much as two and a half hours for us to take care of you. I'd leave. I'd leave. And it wasn't like, you know, Applebee's where they, like gave you the buzzer, you could go walk around and do something. <laughs> Two and a half hours to get your pre-anesthesia check. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. I hate to wait at the doctors. You know, if I want to watch ESP reruns, I'll watch them at home. <laughs> we built... A 350,000 square foot ambulatory center at Penn before I left, beautiful facility, 44% of the space was waiting area. What, what industry spends 50% of its capital so people can be held hostage in waiting areas? Why do you have to wait? So we now have redesigned that work. We actually added one additional exam room which we freed up, that was didn't change anything else, didn't knock down any walls, didn't change the staffing, now you can get processed in 45 minutes. Now we think it probably can get down to about 30 minutes. But it will always take some time to get processed. But 30 minutes versus two and a half hours sounds a lot better to me. And guess what? If you can see people in 30 minutes, you can see about three times as many people. Access to care. As opposed to telling him, long wait today, you'll have to come home and come back. Sorry, Dr. Shannon, I live five hours away. Well, I'm really sorry, but we're not going to be able to do this today. Really? Really? So, this is the work redesign that we're engaged in. We've just started. This is, you know, 5% of the opportunity. This is my favorite story. This is at Penn. You know, we have a really hard, prob- hard time in healthcare defining what the real problem is. So, when I was at Penn, I arrived and I had just gotten there and they called me to a meeting and said, We have to build a parking garage, $65 million parking garage. I said, Why? I would rather use the $65 million to hire some researchers or, you know, build some additional capability in our cancer program. I don't want to spend $65,000 on a parking garage. They said, Oh, you don't understand, Dr. Shannon. Philadelphia traffic, bad, people can't find any place to park. And I said, well, show me the data. I said, well, i show you the data. And what we saw was Monday through Thursday, from about 10 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it was hard to find a place to park. But at 9 o'clock in the morning, or God forbid at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, or better yet, 7 o'clock at night when people were done with their job, or on Saturday or Sunday, or on Friday, you had any parking place in the place you wanted. So I said, so guys, we're going to build a $65 million parking garage to accommodate 10 to three parking Monday through Thursday. Is that what you're telling me? And they said, that's exactly what we're telling you. I said, so give me a second. Let me figure this out because something's wrong here. Well, what was wrong was waiting. We were holding people hostage in waiting rooms and their cars were occupying parking spaces while we did it. So. We did what's called a value stream map, a lean tool, where you look at how work is done here, and then you say, I'm going to get rid of all the stuff that adds no value. So this was actually my heart failure clinic. I'm a heart failure doctor. When I came to Penn, so you'd call for an appointment. That didn't take too long. But to get an appointment with me when I showed up at Penn was 14 days. I said, well, I didn't have any patients. So I went to the schedulers, I said, you know, why does it take 14 days to get an appointment to see me? I said, oh, Dr. Shannon, if people got an appointment with you right away, they wouldn't think you're any good. <laughs> people expect to wait for experts. I said, stop it. You've got to be, you can't be, can't be serious. Absolutely. We want to make sure that people think you're the best. I said, think I'm the best. they got to know and feel like I'm the best. And they're never going to know that if they can't get to see me. 57 minutes to travel in from Villanova. Nothing I can do about that. Those of you who have been to Philadelphia, the school goes a disaster. 22 minutes to park. 31 minutes to register. This was my favorite. Now this particular patient that we followed, and we followed hundreds of people. This guy had been a patient in the heart failure program at Penn for like 15 years. And every time they came in, he had to stand in a queue and get in front of a receptionist. And she would say, has your social security number changed? <laughs> Has your birthday changed? You know? Have you moved? You know, the guy hasn't moved in 25 years. Has your name, you know, a just nonsense. You've all been through it. Right? Right. Thirty-one minutes waiting in line to have someone ask you if your birthday's changed. Twenty-three minutes then in those beautiful waiting areas watching ESP reruns. I don't want to watch ESP when runs at the doctor's office. The most efficient step in the entire process was the vital signs. RMAs were great at getting vital signs. Then you waited 18 minutes in the exam room in one of those wafty gowns. You know, it was it the open in the back, open in the front? Do I wear two? Do I wear you know, I asked Watson, could he come up with like a really good gown? Um, I think that would be an innovation. 17 minutes face to face with me. All this stuff to spend 17 minutes with me. Arguably, that's the value, although you could question that. 14 minutes to check out, 97 minutes to get the test done, 18 minutes to get the hell out of the parking garage. For a 17-minute visit with me, we held this human being captive for four hours and five minutes. For 17 minutes, and I figured it out. It was a Ponzi scheme. We were making all the money on the parking fee. Right? This was more than I got paid for the visit. Ah, I get this parking thing. That's the way we make money here at Penn, parking. not why I didn't grow up to park cars. In any event, so we said, enough of this. No wait for an appointment. If you've got an opening, it's an open schedule, it gets booked. 57 minutes to drive to Philadelphia, can't help that. 15 minutes to park, because I'll show you, we had more parking spaces. Seven minutes to register because all the pre-registration was done the day before, online. No waiting. Once the person checked in, they went to a waiting room. And once they went to a waiting room, they immediately got their vital signs checked. And they were to be seen immediately by the doctor. Now, we gave the doctor five minutes. If you couldn't um, get to see the patient in five minutes, you had to go into that room and tell the patient you were late. You personally had to go in the room and tell them why. 20 minutes with the doctor now, a little more time. 11 minutes to check out. You can get the test done in 45 minutes, because every time someone came to see me, I did the same tests. So what if we scheduled them in advance, so the lab actually knew how many people were coming at what time of the day, and then 14 minutes to exit. Now, the patient was there for only two hours. And guess what? We had twice as many parking spaces, $65 million saved by asking the question, what's the problem, and how do we fix it? I'm going to stop. We're doing a lot of other cool things. I mentioned Watson. I am really into this. Um, I think the power of that kind of cognitive computing and technology is really great. We have formed a joint operating agreement with, with MITRE Corporation in Northern Virginia. Many of you may know them. They're a federally funded research and development group. They are basically the brains and information systems behind the, behind the Department of Defense and the National Security Agency and DARPA. They build military intelligence. CMS, Medicare, has now contracted with them to bring the same sort of intelligence that they've given to the military to healthcare, And we're their learning laboratory. So we have on grounds every day three MITRE engineers working to redesign care through information availability. So if you go up to our surgical ICU, you'll see this big color plot. We have a a series of algorithms that we're getting out of the electronic medical record every 30 minutes. They're put through an an analytic system, and they're portrayed. And they tell us every 30 minutes whether the patient is getting better, worse, or staying the same. We now know 24 hours in advance the likelihood of someone getting sick. And you can start to intervene. So an enormously powerful collaboration with MITRE. I hope Watson becomes the other part of that. But we've created a joint operating arrangement with Bon Secours in Richmond. We have 21 clinical programs we're sharing. We just established a joint operating agreement with Novant Health in Northern Virginia, where Haymarket Hospital and Prince William Hospital and the Gainesville Cancer Center, together with Culpeper Hospital, will form a regional system of community care, which UVA will back. We'll provide the doctors. We'll provide the resources. But the idea is, can we make a regional system of community care so those communities can maintain viable issues? I'm going to stop. Um, we're just getting started, but you can see you can see the possibility. You can see what can happen if you stop cutting the hell out of the stuff and just figured out getting rid of all the junk that doesn't add any value. I'm going to stop. Um, I really appreciate your time. Hopefully we have time for some questions. Thanks a lot.. Uh, yes uh, the uh, when when Obamacare was first coming out I know a lot of people call it Affordable Care Act now but uh, when it first came out there was a lot of discussion about the death panels could you enlighten us as to the truth of that and there was supposed to be some sort of penalty to providers if they if they did procedures for people over 65, they would be penalized. What's, yeah. the, what's the validity of all of that? So I think all that's been stripped. right? None of that really exists in the final legislation. Um, but what it did do is it created a significant cognitive um, gap when it comes to end-of-life decision-making. Because the reality is, as I said, what, what biological truth is we are all going to die. But how we die is, in fact, a matter of choice. And what I think those provisions did when they were in the original legislation, they really got people spooked out about the fact that rationing was going to occur and that we're going to make decisions based upon age. I just told you, 2 thirds of people are going to live to the age of 85. So you can no longer use a number. 2 thirds of the people in this room will live to the age of 85. So you can no longer use that number. I think what we're seeing now is a big push to get better palliative care services. The idea that, look. We've done everything we can for you. You don't need to die in a hospital. You can die comfortably either at home or in some sort of hospice care where all your needs and all your family and all your loved ones can be with you. We don't want those 400 people being put in a helicopter to travel hundreds of miles at huge expense to come here and be pronounced dead. What if we were to create an outreach mechanism by which we could communicate with their doctors before the transfer occurred and said, you know, that person has such a major bleed in their head, there's nothing we can do. You're better off letting them stay where they are. So it set, it set the palliative care movement back, but I think we're seeing a big, big uptick now in thinking about this, this issue of end-of-life care. Um, but it really did set the conversation in the wrong direction. But none of those rationing provisions are part of the current law. Yes? You mentioned that <clears throat> politics does not play a part in all of this, hmm. but you also mentioned I don't see Pfizer move out of the country. Okay. But statistics show that this government that we have has a high rate of charges to these con- companies which make them want to leave the U.S. So politically, yeah. it looks like that is a real problem that if we would keep them here, we would get a lot more money they could pay for all of yeah. those things. So I, I'm not in. A- I'm not the world's expert on, on import, export, and tax stuff. Um, but I am concerned when a clearly US company, Pfizer, can take advantage of a corporate loophole that moves $200 million off of the US shores without any executive moving their office to, take, to, become, to basically avoid taxes. I don't think that's a responsible thing for a Fortune 50 company to do. Because who's going to pick up that difference? Small business. Who can't afford to find an Irish partner, right? I just think that is not corporate responsibility. Now, why they're doing it, I understand. I get it. You know, the biggest driver of increases in health care costs in the last three years have been pharmaceutical costs. Pharmaceutical industry has an average 19% margin, 17 to 19%. I just can't rationalize why. Uh, an American company like Pfizer would do that. They're not, they're not hurting. They're not hurting. So it, it, that's a political statement. <laughs> I, you know, but what I meant to say was reform isn't political. It's about baby boomers. All the conversation has been political. And we've seen you know, lots of the inability of the government to really come together around this. That's why I think it's got to be the providers. We have got to get better at this. Thinking the government's going to solve this, no chance. But the provider community using the stuff I showed you could really pull a lot of cost out of the system. Then we have to have a conversation. How do we get that money back to you or get it to Medicare or get it to somebody? But, I, you know, I said this thing about Pfizer just because I was really, when I read that in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, I was really dis- disappointed. suppose Merck does the same thing. I mean, suppose all these big giants decide that, you know, the way they're going to protect their margins is to go offshore. I, I really worry. I don't think that's corporate responsibility.
2: Two, one local question. Uh, we do have two medical systems here in the Charlottesville area, and and I have to hope that you and Martha Jefferson, UVA and Martha Jefferson, are doing a lot of collaboration. It seems like it, but I, I sort of wonder about that. And secondly, I just like a brief. Comment on whether another part of meeting the financial crisis is not to generate more, what my husband and I call 90% medical opportunities. Meaning, you take care of a lot of normal checkups and all of that kind of thing, either with nurse practitioners or in the kinds of things we're seeing WALGREEN and CVS and all of that do. It doesn't have to be a drugstore, but where you have advanced first aid, if you wish, but you have a stage where really simple things mm-hmm. can be handled without um, a hospital or even sometimes a doctor.
1: So you're absolutely right. Um, the, the focus has to be twofold. We must keep the healthy healthy. We must avoid those one in three Americans that are going to be pre-diabetic from becoming diabetic. The provider community can play a role in that, but that's really where insurance comes into play. So in, uh, I sit on the board of Kaiser Permanente Health System, an integrated health delivery system where Kaiser is both the insurer and the provider. When you're the insurer, you get the dollar first. right? The worker pays you. You then can decide how much of that dollar am I going to invest in keeping that worker healthy. And how much am I going to invest in taking care of people that are sick? And what Kaiser has done brilliantly for 70 years is invest that money in wellness. Couple interesting things about Kaiser. 7% of Kaiser members are Medicaid, 7%. And only 11% are Medicare. Kaiser takes care of working white collar people who are interested in their health. So some of their juice is the selectivity around Silicon Valley and direct contracting with Apple. You know, if if all you had to do was take care of Apple employees, you'd be in pretty good shape. But that, that begs the question you asked me. We have got to figure out how partnering with payers like Anthem and United, we can get access to part of the premium dollar to begin to invest in wellness. We've got to have that conversation. Right now, I have to generate a margin. And I generate my margin by taking care of sick people. When I generate that margin, I can invest some of it back in wellness. But I can't invest all of it back in wellness because I've got to develop capabilities to take care of sick people. So I think the trick is to have a conversation with a payer. You know, basically, for every dollar you send to Blue Cross, they devote 85% of that to medical care. They keep 15%. The conversation we're having with them is, we want half of that 15%, and we'll invest it in wellness. We'll invest it in the kind of preventative strategies that Kaiser and others have shown can be quite effective. So I think the Kaiser secret is wellness and appealing to a very erudite population. I don't think that you can't do the same thing uh, with, with Medicare beneficiaries and with Medicaid beneficiaries. It takes different methods. But we've got to get access to that part of the premium dollar that you can invest. You're absolutely right. I think yes. this is our last question back here.
2: Thank you. Despite my mom going to the University of Pennsylvania and being a Pfizer stockholder, I have a concern over like the whole lean thing and TQM and other terminology of past processes that have gotten better and these estimates that you talk about. And just to be a devil's advocate, do you have a five-year business plan where you show your budget decreasing and actual savings occurring in the big picture? So
1: um, it's an excellent question. Uh, I think it is critically important that we be able to prove that doing the right thing and these improvements will result in the economics that I suggested. And I don't think you know, I obviously haven't convinced you and maybe not others with the data I've shown. Um, But let me just say that uh, you know, I think that the, what we saw in our budget last year was the University of Virginia health system made $22 million more than we were budgeted to make. $22 million more. And when we went back, we said, well, wait a minute. Our revenues were what we thought they were going to be. Our volumes were what they thought we were going to be. Our case mix index was what we thought they were going to be. How could we possibly make $22 million? Well, our length of stay and our expenses were modulated by around $15 million. And some of that, I showed you the length of stay reduction. Some of that is embedded in that savings. We've got to do a better job of the business case, because no one's going to believe me unless we can really prove this at scale. Um, But I do think we've seen early evidence that doing the right thing, well, let's begin with the fact we ought to be doing the right thing, right? No one's going to argue with that. But doing the right thing is the economically good thing. And I would welcome any suggestions you have about how to get better at that faster. A lot of healthcare finance is pretty opaque. So being able to trace these things becomes a little bit of a challenge. The Darden students are pretty smart. I think it's a very fair question. I, I don't know what the alternative is. I'm not really thrilled with what I see absent some success from this kind of measure. Okay, thank you.
2: Thank you. Dr. Shannon, we'd like to say thank you on behalf of Alumni Association and the Lifetime Learning Program. We have a small gift for you. you. Thank you. And we have a a raffle prize for an audience member if you want to do the honors.
1: I don't want anybody to get my cold. All right,
2: I'll reach in and see what we have here. Tim Westfall. Tim, oh, <laughs> our question answer. Great, thank you all. Have a good day.